Okay, so hello and welcome to CodyCast, the podcast for discussion, debate and analysis of issues related to geriatric and general medicine. Um, and I'm Emma and today we've got Pete and Vicky with us. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, and so today is the first in our kind of new series of mini podcasts entitled What I've Learned This Week. Um, and now we've changed the format slightly so they're short, about 15 minutes a length podcast where we discuss a few learning points that we've encountered over the preceding week whether we've learned it from the wards teaching journals or twitter so who wants to get the ball rolling and kick us off i reckon because he's got plenty of uh he's got all the tips that is absolutely yeah. fine i will go first that is no problem um so my first tip that i've picked up this week was actually from, uh, I picked it up from Twitter, um, but it's actually a BGS blog. Um, It's by Patricia Campley and it's entitled The Paper Boat. Um, And she tweets under at Trisha underscore the underscore doc. Um, And we'll put a link up to it on the website um, with this podcast. Um, And the reason I liked it is because um, if you're a geriatrician, if you're training to be a geriatrician, Uh, you won't be able to avoid that an awful lot is being written and researched about frailty. Um, But certainly from my experience, despite a lot of money and time being invested into research into frailty, um, I haven't read an awful lot or come across an awful lot that's actually changed my practice Um, until I read this, what I thought was a really quite wonderful little blog, um, talking about how we should talk about uh, frailty when we're talking to uh, patients or their families. Um, And it was, as I said, one of the first times that I've actually read something that's made me think about the way I practice. Um, And it's all about how you describe frailty to a patient's relative. So I'll just um, read you a little bit from it, if that's all right. Yeah, go for it. Grand. So uh, Patricia Cantley writes, I described my image of a beautiful paper boat brightly painted and currently sailing proudly in the sunshine on the still pond, giving pleasure to all around. I explained that the difficulty was in not knowing what weather was ahead and the problems forecasting accurately. If the weather were to remain fair with a barely a trace of wind, then there's no reason to think that the boat would go down. Indeed, it might sail for, for quite a while. If, on the other hand, the wind got up, or worse, if it started to rain, that frail wee boat would go over quickly with little we could do to save it. And I'm not saying you have to use her words or, or take on her analogy, but I just thought um, it was a really nice read in a way that it made you think about the, the words and the way you describe what frailty is, um, which is something that we obviously come across every day in our practice, but put it in terms that people who aren't medical can actually understand. So I just encourage uh, anyone to have the time. We'll only take a few minutes to read it, but I think it's actually something written about frailty that might change the way you practice. Yeah, after we talked about what to talk about on the this podcast, and you mentioned that I went and read it, and I really liked the way she described it as well. I thought it was a really good visual image of kind of describing frailty and the insults that can, can tip people like that over the edge. Yeah, and I like that. Um, actually, what I picked out of it, well, not, well, not necessarily that I would use exactly the same analogy, but the fact that she explains how before it's it's a sort of a beautiful paper boat and talks about the bright colors on it and it, it just reminds you that the people you're dealing with while they may be quite frail when you meet them that actually they've had sort of incredible lives ahead of behind them and 
and potentially still in their future as well. So I think it's really important to to include that in your conversations with people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's 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 a com- it's actually I used it today with um a family. Yeah. Did you? And um it works really well. It works really well. Um because people can visualize it as you say. Um and it it they understand that analogy whereas sometimes when we tie ourselves in knots trying to describe things it it doesn't work so well. Yeah. Oh, that's great that you've already yeah, put we it tried. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Vicky, so, um, wanna... so I was just going to talk about somebody I saw on the ward. So um, there was a patient who was in the 90s who was referred in by the GP because at the care home, um, she had been having sort of recurrent bacteria in her urine when they dipped it. Um, um, but no particular symptoms but she does have a history of dementia so she'd been treated with multiple antibiotics by her GP so she'd been referred in um, for consideration of IV antibiotics because of ongoing um, bacteria in the urine and they basically had been dipping the urine repeatedly because she'd been a little bit more confused Um, and I just want to highlight particularly for those starting on geriatric wards um, in well this week actually on Wednesday when the new juniors mm-hmm. start and the new doctors start um, that there is something that exists called asymptomatic bacteria so that basically means having urine um, bacteria without having specific symptoms um, the important things that I just want to highlight from this are that it's very common in older adults so it's estimated to be found in 20% of women age 80 or older um, it also affects older men the older the person, the more common it is. And there's been some um, evidence that um, studies of nursing home residents have found that up to 50% may have asymptomatic bacteria, um, which is pretty high. Mm. Um, and the reason we don't want to confuse this with a urinary tract infection is because this can lead to potentially harmful treatment with antibiotics and it doesn't need to be treated with antibiotics. And the risk of that is that in the future, you develop antibiotic resistance. Um, And it is sometimes very hard to distinguish um, what is happening, especially in patients who can't tell you that they've got typical UTI symptoms. But you can look at other things as well. You can look at their inflammatory markers. Do they have a temperature? Is there something, is there another reason for their delirium? Don't just put it down to a UTI. Um, Look for other reasons as well. People are very quick to put delirium down to UTIs um, but it's quite frequently not the case um, so when you have asymptomatic bacteria a urine culture will be positive um, and it just means that there's bacteria in the bladder but they're not provoking an inflammatory reaction and that's the difference um, so to take away from that is just make sure you look at the patient as a whole is there any other reason for delirium do they have urinary symptoms specifically and does this patient absolutely need antibiotics or are we jumping in a little bit too quickly um the other thing to mention just of note is that um people always think they should give cranberry juice for utis but actually there's been various studies that have refuted that um and it absolutely makes no difference i think you'd have to drink liters and liters of cranberry every day to make any sort of difference <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's a good one actually and i suppose when people are in hospital they're in somewhere we can monitor exactly. them so you don't need to jump in straight away you, you could see oh 
like if they get clinically unwell or they become febrile, exactly. then we can. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's a really important point for, as you mentioned, for sort of new starting doctors. Um, you can, I know I felt under pressure as an F1, mm-hmm. you, a nurse does a dipstick on the ward and comes and tells you, look, it look, really looks like there's an, in, an infection there from what's on the dipstick and you, you almost feel a bit under pressure to prescribe something. But actually, um, yeah, you really need to consider whether or not they actually have symptoms or, and is this just something that's asymptomatic. Mm. Um, and I think uh, if they have a few minutes, maybe having a look at the, the mini gym on urine infections on our website um, is a is a really good one for sort of giving yourself a bit of confidence when it comes to sort of standing up to people and saying, actually, no, I don't think this is a urine infection just because there's something on the urine dip. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's hard as well because once these people get started on antibiotics, it's difficult to stop them, even if you don't think it's necessary. Things don't mm. tend to get stopped, do they? So yeah. that person's then kind of having a full yeah. course of antibiotics when actually it might not be needed in yeah. the first place so if all you do is question it that's enough um you know yeah. i know it's hard as an f1 to kind of make decisions necessarily but if you just raise the question that will just get people thinking yeah definitely and mine's i suppose on similar lines in terms of kind of things that you encounter every day as a junior doctor on the ward and mine's about fluids and the reason I picked this topic for the podcast was we had some uh, general medicine registrar teaching and one of the geriatricians spoke about fluids briefly and about the nice guidelines about fluid replacement. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm sure that when I was at medical school, I was kind of taught, oh, young patients need about three litres of fluid a day over 24 hours, maybe slightly less in older patients. And I was taught too sweet, one salty yeah. for young people. Yeah. Too salty, one sweet for elderly people, which is too salty is normal saline and sweet is dextrose. So that's what I was kind of remembering yeah. from university. Um, and I think it's quite easy, uh, especially when you're busy on call as a junior doctor and you're asked to prescribe fluids just to prescribe the mm-hmm. same type of fluid that the was previously prescribed um and actually that might mean that someone's getting loads and loads and loads of normal saline um so the nice guidelines and i'll put a link on at the end of the podcast as well um they split it up into um fluids for resuscitation fluids for replacement and redistribution and also routine maintenance and i was just going to mention about routine maintenance so they've kind of got a good box there about what your routine daily requirements would be and actually it would be 20 to 30 mils per kilogram of, of fluid a day. And if you're frail, elderly, have heart failure or renal impairment, actually you're probably a lower volume of fluid, about 20 to 25 mils per kilogram per day. So actually if you added that up for kind of a 60 kilogram patient, they probably just need kind of a litre and a half to two litres, so 1,500 to 1,800 mils of fluid, um, rather than the kind of three litres that mm-hmm. I always assumed young people needed. I really and then did the, the math. <laughs> I tried to do that in my head. Oh, yeah. I did the maths before. I've got it written down. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and also about kind of what your sodium and potassium and chloride requirements are per day and it was quite interesting because it's only it's one millimole per kilogram per day of each 
So if you're 60 kilograms, it would be 60 millimoles of sodium, 60 of chloride and 60 of potassium. And they've got another good box on this nice guideline, which tells you how much sodium and chloride and dextrose is in, is in different bags of fluid. So sodium is 0.9% sodium has got 154 millimoles of sodium, which actually is more than anybody mm. would mm. usually need in a 24-hour period. Um, Hartman's has got 131. Um, and then they've also got, you know, half and half, so 0.45% sodium and 4% glucose bags. And that's got less sodium, um, 77. I just thought it was quite interesting because generally on a ward, the fluids that you tend to come across are 0.9% saline, 5% dextrose, and Hartman's. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's different in places that you guys have worked, um, but you don't tend to come across kind of the um, 0.45% sodium, 4% glucose, Mm -hmm. do you? Yeah. And actually, maybe we should all be using a bit less of normal saline. And actually, it's not as harmless as we think. And if people are able to tolerate things orally or they've got an NG, then maybe we should be giving fluids Mm -hmm. enterally rather than intravenously. Um, And I just thought it was good to highlight, actually check someone's weight and work out how much fluid they're going to need. And if people are losing fluid in other ways, then you'll have to um, factor that in as well. And then have a quick think about what are their electrolytes before you prescribe any fluids? And um, am I kind of making a sensible fluid choice rather than just prescribing the same thing that someone else has prescribed before? Yeah, I think that's yeah. really important, especially for new starters, um, is, you mm. know, don't just repeat what's been done before you, as you say. Um, think about it yourself yeah I absolutely agree I remember the very first podcast we ever did like three years ago going on about a 20 minute rant about fluid <laughs> prescription because I think I'm slightly <laughs> obsessed by it um but yeah yeah I are mean, you going to repeat the rant no I'm deliberately not <laughs> all right no one needs to hear that or you can cut it out wherever you can edit this afterwards. <laughs> but um but yeah, no, everything you said is absolutely mm. right. Just know know what you're prescribing is what I always sort of tell yeah. people. Like you do yeah, it with drugs, absolutely. so you do it with fluid. Yeah. So, Pete, I think you've got a, a second point, haven't you? I do. I do. And this is only because every week we're going to try and do four points. And it's only two weeks yeah. today, not just because I love to talk. Um, but <laughs> this one is taken from the wards um, and is because... Um, I'm currently working quite a bit with a Parkinson's disease team and uh, we often get referrals to see people on the ward who have Parkinson's disease and um, quite rightly the staff on the ward are are worried that their Parkinson's seems to have got a bit worse and they're worried that their medications aren't working as well for them as they would do at home. Um, So I just wanted to give some quick tips on how to absolutely optimise people's Parkinson's disease medications when they are in hospital. Um, there are sort of two big headlines, which I won't go into o- over and over because I, I, I hope at least that people people know them quite well, which is obviously give them their normal Parkinson's disease regime and make sure they get it at the times that they would normally take it at home. Um, and secondly, make sure they get um, their Parkinson's medication. And if they can't take it by their normal routes, so normally by mouth, 
then give it in an alternative way. Um, and there's a great website set up by uh, a former Amy member, James Fisher, uh, called www.pdmedcalc.co.uk to go to, which shows you what to do if people can't take their normal meds by mouth and your options for how to convert it to an NG route, which would be your sort of first preference, or to a patch if necessary. So I'm not going to go on about those two things, but there was just a couple of other tips I want to mention, which was if you're worried that they're, ta they're, they're taking their normal regime but the Parkinson's disease is worse, make sure they're not constipated. So Parkinson's disease makes you constipated anyway. Um, and when you get constipated, you don't absorb your Parkinson's disease medications as well. Um, so it's a bit of a nasty circle of things and it just gets worse and worse and worse. So look for your patients with Parkinson's disease to be opening their bowels uh, every day because um, it'll actually help their tablets work. Uh, second is watch out that um, their iron tablets haven't been prescribed if they're on iron tablets at the same time as their Parkinson's disease tablets because the iron tablets will stop you absorbing the Parkinson's disease tablets. And we normally recommend people that there's like a two, three hour gap between taking an iron tablet and taking a Parkinson's disease tablet if possible. Um, so just be careful with your prescription on those. Also make sure that nobody's sneaked onto their prescription something that actually um, inhibits their dopamine system. So some prochlorperazine, some metroclophamide, some haloperidol, even if they're getting it PRN, um, it'll completely block their dopamine receptors and could risk them becoming seriously unwell. And finally, an awful lot of patients will have a, a PRN dispersible form of their, med of their Parkinson's disease medication. And by dispersible, I mean they dissolve it in water and they take it when they feel they need a, a bit of an extra boost. Um, and it's a short acting form um, that gets in their system quicker, tends to activate in about 20 minutes, but only lasts an hour or two. It tends to be there when they're having sort of more difficult times during the day. Um, now, when you're in hospital, all your medications are usually locked away and you can't access them as you normally would. Um, and that makes it really difficult for people with Parkinson's disease to get this form of medication when they would normally take it. So make sure that one, is prescribed, and two, the patient knows how to get it quickly. And finally, the most common reason it seems like their Parkinson's disease medication isn't working is that they have an acute underlying illness which has made their symptoms of Parkinson's disease worse. And actually, they don't need more medication. They just need you to treat the underlying illness. So that was about five quick tips perfect to, no that's how to try and make medicate pd medication really yeah, great for, tips. for everybody not just new doctors starting Grand, especially with the iron yeah that's good about the iron to know that although i can imagine it's quite hard to get a gap of two or three hours if you're on four times a day it really is mm -hmm. and we end up um, working with patients and gps um getting people to take their iron at odd times during mm -hmm. the day um, because you just have to try and fit it in a break because it will really inhibit the absorption of, of the Yeah, and it's just making sure that translates into hospital when they come in then. <laughs> well, exactly. That's what I mean. I mean, often what happens is they'll see iron tablets, you know, once mm. a day and you'll just yeah, stick it first. Exactly. Well, that's quite a reasonable thing to yeah, do, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but just to ha have in your head that that would be bad for if it coincides with the PD tablet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they're I've great something new. tips. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. I'm glad, I'm glad I could uh, teach something. I think that's the idea, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening. 
and the podcast will be available on the website and on iTunes. And we'd love it if you tweeted us any topics, hot topics that you wanted us to discuss during the week or why don't you just tweet us anything you've learned as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. And so you can tweet us at, at early Med oh, yeah. Thanks, Pete. I always forget that. <laughs>